Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. In a couple of recent episodes, notably those with Susan Kiefer and Richard Driver, we've talked a bit about music history, but today we're going to talk a bit about the use of film in history, and films about history, with Sarah Esty, an instructor in history at Southern New Hampshire University. In this episode, we will discuss Sarah's academic and professional background, the usefulness of films, or at least segments of films, in teaching history to students, and a few of the most notorious films about historical events that have been released in recent decades. What is your name and what do you do? Hi, um, I'm Sarah Esty, and I teach at Southern New Hampshire University and as an adjunct professor. And we will talk a little bit more about that later on. But before we get there, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Yeah, so I went to uh, both my bachelor's and master's at um, the State University uh, of New York at Brockport. Um, I majored technically in American history, but I also did uh, in my graduate work media studies, uh, meaning that I kind of... uh, did independent studies with uh, professors dealing with media, but also film, music, and art. Uh, And that's what I uh, use my master's degree to kind of complement the history field. And did you work on any, uh, like a thesis project as part of that, uh, as part of that degree? Uh, Yes, I did. I used uh, media specifically dealing with gender in the um, uh, the creation of the Republic or the American uh, Republic. Really? And how, can you tell us a little bit more, more about that? How did that, uh, how did that come about and what conclusions did you draw from that? Uh, yeah. So, uh, my thesis advisor, he d- dealt with a lot of, uh, the public and the societal use of money. So he wanted to discuss and kind of lead my way with the idea of how women, uh, were viewed in not only legal, but also monetary, like their jewels and, and things like that. So we did a lot of um, discovery in how women were seen but not seen in the American Republic and also uh, terminology in the like lexicon of like we the people and, and men and how it was like we think of it as human, but Realistically, it's about the gender term of man. So we talked a lot about how um, in maybe present day function, we would say like man as in human or they as in the world. But when the founders talked about it, they were really uh, talking about men only and specifically white men. That's interesting. And so if you were talking about at the founding, you were focusing primarily probably on letters, newspapers, speeches, that kind of thing. Cause it, it, obviously just, it, it wasn't films <laughs> obviously, right. but you're talking more about the media that existed at the time. And so what types of source base did you use for that? Yeah, definitely speeches. Um, uh, Thomas Paine was a big part of it because he talked a lot about um, not only just men, but also kind of the larger group of humans. He did talk about women. Um, he, he, he kind of being an outlier to that group. Um, he moves over to like France and they kind of have a different feel about men and women, um, than Americans do at times, but also, uh, I mean, there's plays, there's also like little ditties that people would write. There's also things that like 
they would be like the precursor to political cartoons. Um, so kind of like little, almost like Thomas Nash, but like pre Thomas Nash sort of feel, um, with the cartoons and kind of making fun of people. They're mostly written by men. So sometimes the absence of the female voice is what I was looking at. Um, it's been a long time since I, I've kind of strayed away from that, to be honest with you. But, uh, it was mostly, I think the absence of women that helped create the narrative in my piece because the lack of women's voices. And also, uh, when they did refer to women, it was usually like ball and chain or, you know, you know, talking about their physical attributes or how much money their father had versus, you know, their careers or their, um, attributes to society and, um, how they could be a part of the political ethos or something like that. They're more talking in like the Benjamin Rush sort of like women's field when they do talk about women. And that makes a lot of sense that, I mean, you're looking mainly at male, um, uh, perspectives there. Were you able to find any women's perspectives that provided any additional support for that or, uh, not obviously not as many women are, are engaged in, in maintaining records like that, but were, did you find some that contri- that helped you to kind of support that, that claim or did they, or did you see that they kind of went against that claim or, or, or did you just not find them at all? Um, I mean, the majority of women that are writing in that period are um, elite women. So they probably, I would say fall into the supporting role of the patriarchal viewpoint, like Martha Washington, um, you know, Mrs. Adams, you know, remember the ladies and all that stuff. Um, The idea is that they remember them in the sense of uh, building a partnership, not that they're equal or better than men. It was more like she, John didn't remember the ladies anyways, so it didn't really matter. But the idea is that there are women that are in the elite group that are writing Uh, I would say in support of that separate sphere that they are saying that women are an integral part of the Republic, but not separate and independent from the male patriarch. So they are, they have their own place, their own dominant sphere, which is the home and uh, the family where they kind of build the support of, you know, God and country and build the next sense of, of patriots or, um, small R republicanism, that that sense of w- women uh, giving that. And then you do have like the um, Linda Kerber, uh, she's a historian that wrote about like low class women and that they were kind of separate, like the, you know, uh, women of the night or whatever in quotes, you know, or the, the low class workers. And they tended to be separate, but not equal to men only based on economic function rather than like political or social function. So if you're of money, women tended to believe that they were kind of an integral part of like building the nation and then lower class women just were building the nation. So they didn't have time to think about where they fit in. They were just kind of, you know, worrying about safety, security, and food. So you kind of see that in the absence of their voices if you're not rich basically. Interesting. All right. And so that became your MA thesis? Yeah, that was the culmination of that was the paper based on, uh, it's just gendered language and and Mm -hmm. dealing with that. 
Well, that sounds like a really interesting uh, project and um, good for you for pursuing that. Uh, are you thinking of going any further with it now that you've finished your degree? Um, no, that was like 10 years ago. So I, ah. I kind of moved away from that early Republic. I've kind of dealt more with like kind of, I guess, revolution on film and revolution and not just the American version, but kind of like, I guess, people's voices at dissent. That would be kind of like the projects that I'm working on in the classroom. What do you mean by uh, dissent? You mean people that were opposed to the the revolution itself or uh, where, where you, what do you mean with that? Um, so like dissent of like the government or the social group, because I mean, not only is sometimes like the Russian revolution isn't just about the czar, it's about the economic function or in France, the same thing. And then you can see that in like Cuba as well. It's kind of economically based. So it's like dissent from what we think of as, as economic normalcy. So you say that you're working on that project now. Do you have any specific end goal with that? Are you looking to publish it or looking to just incorporate it into your classroom? What's What are you going to do with that? I mean, in reality, that would be amazing to have like kind of like a teacher's guide to using film based on mm. secondary and primary sources and then the film being that tertiary source. So I have a lot. I mean, it hasn't been to like a publisher or anything, but I have definitely... Uh, droves of material that I use myself and then have still been, you know, putting together as I, uh, new films come out literally every day. So like the work is never done. So, I mean, I have to keep going back and some are better than others. I mean, some get pushed to the forefront versus some other films that maybe are seen as like too experimental or too far off the historical truth but mm-hmm. it is something that it would be a goal it is a goal i guess so yes it is a goal and i like that because i've i've been wanting to incorporate different types of media into my courses like film uh podcasts music and i i struggle though because i don't always have the expertise in the particular film subject matter. And so it, I think a guide like that would actually be really welcome in the profession because it's, I think there's a realization among most historians that uh, to bring students into the fold, so to speak, we need to be able to kind of play to the, in the interests of students. And in this modern kind of multimedia world that we all live in, having access to those types of multimedia presentations is kind of essential. And so I think there's probably a, a big potential market for some sort of a guide or something, maybe even if it's just a website or something that's, that instructors could access to kind of get a sense of, you know, these these movies have been vetted. There's kind of a, a teacher's guide, if you want to call it that, or a facilitation guide or something that helps the instructor who's not as well versed in the making of film and all of that to allow them to kind of have a meaningful conversation with students. I think there's a, there, I think there's probably a huge market for that type of thing. So uh, I, again, bravo to you for working on that. And I hope that you eventually find some way to distribute that because I would like to see it <laughs> at the very least. And I'm sure there's probably others out there that would also. Yeah, it's definitely something that is, from the you know colleagues that I've worked with, they also are a little bit hesitant to use film. I mean, I have to just you know kind of preface that I don't use the entire film. I've never advocated that we just 
watch a movie and just say this is how it is. I'm more scene-based, kind of almost like a book has the quote at the beginning that kind of frames the chapter. Like, you know, most historians can do that where they put like some sort of like quote from a king or or maybe another historian. Sometimes people think that I just like show a film during class and I'm like, yep, this is history. Yep. This is how it happened. <laughs> well, right. Cause we do, I mean, there is that stereotypical kind of mainstream view that, you know, lazy teachers or teachers who are just tired, they'll just put on a, a video for the day or something, but that's not, I mean, I guess maybe in some cases that's the reality, <laughs> but I think the, I think more often than not though, I think there is an attempt or a legitimate attempt by that instructor to try to get to something meaningful from a film, but um, but yeah, finding the right scene can be hard to do. And so that's, it. again, I think that could be worth, um, uh, pursuing if you're, if you're able to put together some sort of a project that picks films and then identifies specific scenes within films that might be of interest for these particular reasons for these particular topics, I think that would be a really welcome, um, development. I, yeah. And it also, it, it would kind of take a little bit of the work out of it for people who, don't have the time to, cause you have to read other historians. Like film is a little bit more complex in like, not, it's not theory. It's like analysis. So you have to have sources just like any primary or secondary source. You need references to kind of prove what you're saying. So it does take time um, to look into, like you said, the field and I'm not an expert in all history, but when I do see a film or a clip from a film that I like, I kind of do a deep dive and see what the research is out there and what I can prove. And I mean, like, for example, if we can go into an example for a second, in um, one of my uh, works uh, projects that I did in the first part of my master's kind of getting in, introducing some of the faculty to this idea of film, because it definitely had some resistance. My second reader was not too keen on it, but I had to kind of bring him along and we ended up getting there. But there's a movie um, with Al Pacino. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Revolution. Uh, it was directed by Hugh Hudson in 1985. And it's basically, I mean, I'm not going to go into the, the whole premise, but basically an immigrant, he's a Scottish immigrant. He comes down into New York and the revolution is kind of starting and he's not really into it. He, his son is more into it because he's kind of a little bit more integrated to the American. He's still very much Scottish. So we kind of get that immigrant feel. And then throughout the film, there's some drama, there's some love, Donald Sutherland's in it. So, you know, there's, you know, acting and things like that, but he gets to the point where he starts to believe uh, in the, the cause of the revolution. And he, I have a quote from the film and it says, um, this is Al Pacino. So, you know, this is kind of, you know, I'm not going to do an Al Pacino accent here, but he says, we're, we're going to find us a place where there ain't no one to bow down to, where there ain't no Lord or lady better than you, um, where you can say what you like, climb as high as you want, and ain't nobody going to treat you like a dog in the dirt. So when I heard that, um, it was like on, I think it was on a TV it was on the TV movie, like probably at like two in the morning when I was in college and I heard it and I was like, wow, that sounds like, um, Jack, uh, green, uh, 
and, and he was writing a book. And then I read another book called um, Reluctant Revolutionaries. It's by Joseph Tideman, I think. I'd have to look it up. Um, but he, I have the quote from him that basically says the same thing. Um, there was a, a, a random guy that wrote, uh, he said something in 1775. He says, I'm ready to die for liberty and I advise you um, to die as well, rather to yield your title to the rights of these unconstitutional claims of the ty- tyrannical parliament and ministry. So basically, when I heard that quote by Al Pacino, I equated it to something I had read in my history class. And it was like, it just gelled together that this movie was making the argument that some of the lower class people were not as keen on going to war to fight for the colonies for the British until they felt it themselves personally, that they saw that they could have upward mobility. And I think, I mean, any American historian would argue that Thomas Paine says the same thing in common sense. So, I mean, we can use those films and I mean, everyone loves a good period a piece to just mock Al Pacino. I mean, that's always good. Always just a good (laughs) laugh in my class, to be honest, when he does his uh, quote unquote, Scottish American accent, which is mostly like an Italian accent. I'm not really sure <laughs> going with that, but uh, I did end up looking up tons about the piece and he put a lot of his own money into it. So I could see why he was very uh, keen on making those pieces work. So it's just that there is more than just like watching the film. It's the visual, but it's also the dialogue sometimes that really can connect to how we view history. Cause I know that I've never personally felt like I'm in the revolutionary period. I have lights and cameras and phones and it's not like that. So if I can draw the students to a visual, it helps to kind of bring it into their world and, and just makes Mm -hmm. it a little bit more immersive. Yeah, that's, that sounds great. I haven't actually seen that movie. It sounds, it sounds interesting. And you know, the description of his accent, (laughs) that, that kind of sells it for me right there. Um, But uh, okay, so so that one sounds like it's a really good um, uh, kind of way of demonstrating some of the with, without getting bogged down in reading common sense and all that, or uh, or any other memoirs by any of the founding fathers, whatever you want to call them. Right. The, the movie does kind of present it in an in an entertaining and 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 hopefully well acted way. Uh, what other movies have you found useful to you in this type of endeavor? Um, I there are uh, like honestly, I I can see a lot of different movies being used. I've used a lot. I mean, I've even went as far as to use like, you know, the Prince of Egypt, the Disney movie to show creation stories. I mean, it's Mm. just how you can use it. There's kind of like, um, there's a, an author, uh, Robert Rosenstone. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he talks a lot about, um, how to use film. I guess this, it was a little bit before my time, but in the eighties, this came up into the kind of historiography, Um, and there was like a back and forth between historians about how they can use film. And he said that they can use it two ways. They can use it explicitly in that it talks about the feeling of the decade or the feeling of the event, like say like Rocky being working class or like the deer hunter being Vietnam or even Mike Judd's idiocracy being like, you know, the, the late two thousands. And then you can use it implicitly where you like talk about like 
an actual data logic and documents to kind of create that narrative like glory or the, the um, Mel Gibson, the Patriot um, or things like, uh, you know, Spielberg's, you know, um, Schindler's list. Yeah. So like there, there's like ways that, sorry, there's ways that implicit versus explicit how they use it. So I always thought about it like that, like you can use it in the way that you're saying like a director has a commentary, like his worldview, his bias, like any historian has a bias when they write his a secondary source, or you can kind of use it more as that tertiary source where you're saying that it's showing you history, not explaining history to you. Does that mm-hmm. make like, it's like a kind of, he makes this, this really clear and he has a couple um, books that he talks about this. Um, I guess I use, uh, in just in recent terms, I've used uh, um, the Leonardo DiCaprio um, Gangs of New York. Like for Gangs of New York, um, I wouldn't use the whole movie because it has, um, as Rose in, uh, Stone talks about, it has a narrative that it's pushing where it elevates a, a single character and it makes it a little bit more emotional. He has like, you know, his dad and the love interest and all that stuff. But there is a scene when he's walking onto the dock that he is met with uh, Billy the Butcher and they're talking about politics. And that can be directly connected to like Boss Tweed and directly connected to like the Democratic versus, um, you know, Whigs versus um, Natives ideology that happens in Five Points. So I always try to make sure that I include with the clip or with the um, piece some sort of primary source or some sort of secondary source that kind of connects them so that they don't think that this is the, the, the students don't think, excuse me, the students don't think that, that I'm representing history as a, a Hollywood film because yeah. it's definitely dangerous to kind of go down that slippery slope because I don't think that Scorsese has an inside track. He's not a historian and he, he at times takes liberties that as a historian I wouldn't take because we don't know that information, but he's in it to make money and I'm in it to find the the, the reality or the, or the past truth. So we have to like, as historians, we have to remember that we're not the gatekeepers of movies. So we do have to kind of judge them harshly and they can be fun. You can be laughing, but as if you're looking at the historical value, you want to make sure you have something that supports it. Just like any good argument when you're writing, you want to make sure you have that support. You're you're bringing up a lot. I'm trying to. I've got a lot of questions coming to mind. I'm trying to figure out where how to prioritize my questions here. But first off, I thought it was really interesting that you're calling movies or films a tertiary source because we usually reserve that for things like encyclopedias, Wikipedia, textbooks. But it it actually does make a lot of sense to consider films to be in that category because. Right. Very few of the writers and directors are going out and digging up primary sources in an archive. They're usually basing the screenplay off of secondary sources that already exist, monographs, whatever. Uh, thinking of things like um, the Lincoln movie, um, uh, which was at Spielberg also in 2012, I think it was. 
um, which was based off of uh, Goodwin's Team of Rivals, if I remember correctly. And so um, there's books that are based on, or move, films that are based on books. But yeah, so they're so yeah, that, that's really interesting to to consider that it's, it's kind of a tertiary source. I never really thought of it that way. That's really, that's interesting. That came over time because I definitely was in the same camp as most people that it was secondary. But but then when you look at it, sometimes film doesn't create the same argumentative narrative that a secondary source needs. Yeah. It, it kind of closes it. it. You know, it doesn't really follow the five C's at times and it doesn't really have the same, the same criteria that we would judge a secondary source on. So I like the idea of it kind of being an, on the outside of that because it has the capacity to enter into secondary, but I don't want to like limit it and say it's secondary. Yeah, and tertiary sources are meant to provide kind of a quick and dirty overview. It's not meant to really go into nuanced detail about, you know, causality and all of that stuff like monographs do. It's meant to just kind of give a big picture, you know, an encyclopedia entry on World War II. It's, right. you know, even if it, even if the entry is two or three pages long, it's not going to go into detail about every all the troop movements and all the social stuff back home. It's not going to go into detail on any of that stuff. And, and movies kind of work the same way is that the movie is going to focus on the big picture part or the big picture and it's going to focus on specific elements that are relevant to the story in the movie. So I can see a lot of similarity there. That's that's a really interesting point. And then um, also an, an interesting point. This is actually something I mentioned in a different podcast episode a couple episodes ago, um, where I was talking about how you mentioned the Mike Judge movie, uh, Idiocracy, as kind of a way of showing kind of the mindset of Americans in the um, in re recent decades. I was wondering, um, I actually like to use that movie in my classes. When I was doing face-to-face -face classes, I would use the first, I don't know how well you know the movie, but the very first scene of that movie talks about basically the dumb people taking over the world. Yeah, like they're and how, populating it. And like <laughs> right, because yeah. they're populating. And so I, I like to show that first scene, not because it has any historical value or anything, but at the end of it, I like to ask students, so what do you think about that? And of course, they all say, oh, it really it's really a bad idea for the dumb people to take over the world. And so I like to say, well, that means that you, that is the progressive era mindset right there, that dumb people are taking over the world. And so now what do we need to do to stop that from happening? You need to do. You need to have better access to education. You need to have better access to med medicine to keep people healthy and smart. And 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 it's really interesting to hear students kind of come up with solutions to the idiocracy scenario, and then compare those solutions to the the actual progressive era people back in you know the turn of the twentieth century, the stuff that they were putting out there to try to fix the problems of the world, to try to prevent the dumb people from taking over. And so it's um, and that and. Again, it's not a historically accurate film in it by any stretch of the imagination, but it does stimulate interest in the students to think, "Oh, okay, I do kind of see the see some connections there." So it, it's it's I, I don't know if you've ever heard of anybody else trying to do something like that with that with that particular movie or with any other movie, but it seems to work really well in my classes. Oh, I mean, it sounds like a great exercise to be honest, especially with historiography and the concepts of seeing sometimes students, like you say, they can't see like a, you know, wig progressive or a neo progressive ideology. But if you put frame it in like their uh, cultural references, it's definitely a way for them to see things 
a little bit clearer because it's closer to like their own worldview. That and so I suppose that's the kind of thing that could work with like that project we were talking about earlier with trying to develop some sort of a database or something for films and scenes and all of that, that, uh, I mean, I guess that could be my contribution if you wanted to do a crowdsource type thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's always uh, welcome, always welcome to add to it. Cause I, I would have never seen it like that. Cause I always just looked at it more as like, uh, I guess in, in Judd's uh, work, he has a, a way of talking about middle America that, um, it's it's like he's swiping at them, but at the same time he's asking them to wake up. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's it's easy for students because I mean I'm from the East Coast, born and bred, so I mean I have a way of looking at the world versus maybe someone in the Midwest, and he tends to kind of at times be able to bridge those gaps with his movies or even uh, some of his TV shows and like how he comments on social function and elections and things so that's probably how i was viewing it but i think that um the concept in the beginning is definitely an interesting historiography lesson and i might steal it myself yeah by all means go for it um yeah it is interesting that 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 one movie which you know is never going to get held up as a great masterpiece of cinema or anything but I mean, even that one movie, you can kind of play it in a bunch of different ways from a historical perspective to to try to come up with some sort of a lesson about um, whether you're talking about the modern era or you're talking about past eras like progressivism and all of that. It's interesting to think that one movie can open up uh, different, multiple conversations that way. Yeah, and there's a lot of movies that are that tend to to go into what, um, like you know, um, this other guy, um, his name's Hayden White, and also. Um, Robert Rosenstone would talk about as historical fiction, like, Mm -hmm. like um, Forrest Gump, for example, is a really good way to show historical fiction, but also the narrative. So, I mean, I'm assuming you've seen Forrest Gump. Mm -hmm. So like he plays, he places Forrest Gump in really historical places like Nixon. He's with Nixon and he's, at the, you know, uh, battles in Vietnam. And he has, you know, a lot, he invents like the happy face, you know? So right. those conversations that come up aren't really sometimes in my class directed about what Forrest does, but like the surrounding, like, why is this individual involved? Like, why would he pick, why would the director pick this particular piece of history? What is he trying to show us? So I think that's another piece is like sometimes you don't have to have a historical film be right to make it a conversation. You can almost look at what's wrong and that helps students sometimes see the the real history. If you have the, the other data points that you're looking at, the other sources and the other, I use a lot of primary sources if I can, because that's the other voice that you can look at and you can see those voices, uh, on screen or sometimes why aren't they on the screen? Like why aren't some of the people uh, involved in certain things? You know, what was the director trying to tell us or what was the director not able to tell us? It's interesting that you bring, that you mentioned that a film doesn't have to be historically accurate to serve a good purpose. Um, and I mentioned that because I, tr- I think back to back in my grad school days, uh, you know, so a bunch of us would go out to see movies 
just as a way to escape <laughs> classes and all of that. Um, but we would go to, and we would see things like, you know, back when I was in grad school, that movie 300 came out, which is about the battle of Thermopylae, um, really cheesy kind of sci-fi action type movie. Um, and I remember thinking, and I, and I, I remember thinking, well, you know, this, the, I mean, it wasn't a great movie, but I remember thinking, you know, there's, there's, you know, it, it, it there's value in the very existence of this movie because seeing this movie, there's going to be a lot of people who had never heard of the Battle of Thermopylae. And even if this isn't presenting a, you know, a fact by fact, <laughs> accurate view of the Battle of Thermopylae, it's going it, to, the, the existence of the movie is going to spread historical knowledge, even if it's not totally accurate. At least that, that was my take on it. And then it would be interesting to talk to other people who were just infuriated by the movie because, you know, they were using the wrong weapons <laughs> or the, the, this particular piece of armor didn't exist at that point in time. So, so the whole movie should be, should be shredded and torn apart and just lit on fire because it has some, some historical inaccuracies in it. And so it's an interesting dynamic that's popped up and it, it actually has kind of popped up in some of my classes when I teach history also, as I talk to students and say, what do you guys think about, you know, movies like, like 300 or, you know, pick your, pick any other history movie or movie that's based on historical events and say, you know, is, is this, is this good or not? I mean, putting aside whether it's good from like a narrative perspective, but you know, is the existence of this movie good or not? And it, it, it's, it, it always creates a very sharp divide between the people like me who think, well, you know, at least people are talking about something that's history related, yeah. <laughs> even if it's not totally accurate, at least they're, you know, they've got the basic storyline down uh, versus the people who are like, no, 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 it wasn't completely accurate. So therefore it's worthless. It's an interesting kind of ongoing conversation among I've, historians. Yeah, I've had that debate, especially with military historians. Oh yeah. Um, oh it, yeah. It definitely, it, it can get like pretty uh, offices doors can be slammed, but I mean, I use 300, <laughs> But I don't use it. I mean, I personally am like a more of a bottom up historian. I don't really go into like military battles and like regiments and things like that. But I use it as gender because there's a scene in the beginning where when the messenger comes and he is talking to the only, I mean, first of all, there's two kings, but there's only one in the movie, but that's the, you know, that's neither here nor there. And then <laughs> that's that, talking, that factual stuff that we don't have to get bogged down. They just wanted yeah. Gerard Butler to be the only king. Right. Uh, so he's talking, they're talking. And then the, the wife chimes in and the messenger is like, you better remind your woman, uh, you know, that she can't talk. And she's like, uh, listen, we're we're good here because you know women are the only ones that create Spartan men, and that is a kind of Spartonian ideology, I guess, <laughs> that they mm -hmm. have that that Spartan women are almost elevated from Athenian women or you know any of the other uh, women of the area because they create the 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 Spartan men. So I mean, there is truth within Zack Snyder's uh, concepts. He's just really more in for the graphic novel of it all than rather the yeah. historical narrative. But I like it because the uh, students really respond because it's something they've probably seen outside of the history class. And yeah. then it's like they can be experts in something, which is cool because they always bring in like all the graphic novel stuff. I'm like, oh, cool, cool, cool. Like, and I let the student be the expert so that there's like a shared um, 
dynamic so that I can bring like, oh yeah, you like this movie? Oh, tell me more about this and this and this. And then I bring in like the history and it's like I snuck the vegetables in their chicken nuggets or something. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that's in some ways it's a frustrating conversation, but I do get it. And, and yeah, you're right. It, generally, it does tend to be the military historians, um, political historians tend to be the ones that kind of focus on the negative aspects of it. Um, and they're not wrong by any means. I mean, I, I totally understand if, you know, if they were using a World War One tank in a World War Two movie, I can see why that would drive people bonkers. Um, oh, yeah. My wife, my wife is a scientist. And so every time we go see a movie that has any type of scientific basis to it, she just gets, she, she starts pulling her hair out because they, they use such ridiculous protocols and all of that. So right. I, to I totally understand the frustration. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I just subscribe to the idea that, that there's a, there's a bigger thing here that at least, you know, there's some knowledge being passed around, even if it's not totally accurate because most people that walk away from the movie, they're not going to remember all the various specific details that happened in the movie anyway. All they're going to remember is that there was some really cool imagery or something like that, but they'll also come away thinking, remembering that, you know, there was this place called Sparta. It was under attack from, uh, Persians and they defended themselves you know, they died doing so. Right. <laughs> but they, they, they were they a fought. military society, which is an important function of the Spartan ideology is that they had military and that they strive to have that at like literally the apex of their society is the military might. So, I mean, if you come away from 300 with knowing that Sparta equals military, I think the historians have won at that point. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that's my perspective on it too. So good. I'm glad it's nice to have a, uh, an, an ally in this fight. So I, I may call on you in case, uh, <laughs> in case the fight gets ugly again. That's like literally like people always, um, what, you know, I, when we tell, I don't know if this is the same, but like when you tell someone that you teach history, you get like that automatic groan, like, uh, like they remember their <laughs> history class from like or something. So I try to like combat that with like, you know, humor is always good, but also, you know, visual, I kind of talk about them as like digital tertiary sources. So, um, digital informational tertiary sources and like, the idea is that I'm just using them as a piece to get people interested in history because the majority of the people that I've, you know, had an experience with at the community college level probably aren't going to be historians. They might teach history if they, you know, find that to be exciting, but the majority of them are going to go into their own careers or discipline and they might remember, you know, a couple movies or a couple things that I talked about. Um, even the the kind of outrageous ones that I've used before, like I said, the Prince of Egypt is a really it's a cartoon, and they still like talk about it in, in the sense of creation stories. So it works, and they've seen it before. I mean, it's not like I guess it's not Disney; it's like DreamWorks or whatever. Were there any kind of large concepts uh, regarding to use of film in the classroom that you wanted to touch on that we haven't uh, talked about yet? I guess like there are some guidelines or out like right things that historians or like people like myself, I mean, we don't claim that history, it, the, the historical film or the film is an actual representation of history. Um, it, it's more of like a collection of the historical memory or shared memory. Um, also, Sometimes film tends to be about individuals or like elevated individuals that may or may not be as integral to the story. So we kind of have to remember that uh, as well as it's 
making it's supposed to make money or entertain you so sometimes mm-hmm. things get glossed over or sometimes things get drawn out um there's like a whole like list i mean i can uh just tell you that robert Ro- rosenstone is a great source he's a historian out of california um and then the other thing is that there is the film itself is is um a process so it's kind of more complex and it has um concepts overlaying each other as well as kind of com- combining our historical lenses sometimes to the point where like we might not even recognize those lenses so we tend to see history in like digestible pieces like in our world we look at them as like chapters well films don't have chapters unless it's like you know titanic or something where it's like five hours long Mm-hmm. tend to like make that one like one gasp or one fluid like breath and sometimes we as historians get a little taken aback by that because we're used to that like digestible chunking or that kind of like chapter model so sometimes people that use film have to remember that we are looking at like a little bit more of an overtone rather than like this scene in particular uh, represents this, but the whole movie might not work for the, what you're saying. So mm-hmm. it's like an interesting concept. And then um, I guess I can give you some uh, podcasts that I listen to if that's what we're doing now. Uh, well, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's move on to recommendations. So yeah, you had some podcasts you want to mention. So um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So um, I've been kind of um, obsessed with this podcast called Disgraceland. It's not by a historian. Um, he is more of a like a layman, but he does do a little bit of research and they're digestible. They're about 30 minutes long. So uh, for example, the one that I listened to just recently uh, was about Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, and I didn't know a lot about Jerry Lee Lewis. So it was interesting to find out all the craziness with his wives. He was kind of like a uh, a bad boy of rock and roll. I had no idea. I thought he just sang great balls of fire and that was it. So that was interesting. Uh, and then the other one that uh, I listened to is called noble blood. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's another kind of digestible 30 minutes and it goes into like a little bit of the, I guess like the kind of kooky history. Like for example, it, it was talking about, um, Marie Antoinette, but it was also talking about her last days, which we don't really talk about and how she uh, chose to wear all black and things like that. And, and just kind of like a little bit to the aside of what we think of as like the, the main narrative of history. And I find those stories to be the most, uh, the ability to connect to history the most is when you find those stories that um, you relate to and they're like a little bit, um, personal, but also you can see the person in the history. It's not just like a figurehead talking at you. Though, if you want a figurehead that talks at you, Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, they are three to four hours long. And I mean, they go into the depths of like, there was one about the the Chinese empire um, and the fall of uh, and the, well, the move towards the, uh, with Genghis Khan and stuff like that. And that was like, I think a three part and each part was like three hours long. So, I mean, there's history like that, it's called hardcore history, but I'm more of a 30 minute or less kind of girl. And 
I like when they're interesting, but also like quirky and have that kind of like everyday feel to them, but they're back in like the 1600s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, yeah, those are, those are good recommendations. Um, I think I've recommended the Dan Carlin one before, um, the, I got, uh, buried in the world war one I, I think it was a year or two ago he put out five or six episodes on world war one um which yeah you put them all together and it ends up being like 24 hours long it's quite a massive project but yeah he does some really good stuff um and uh yeah those other ones are sound really interesting so i'll uh, try to uh, check those out so that's great that's those are some really good recommendations i'm going to just mention briefly the American Historical Association just put out, I mean, we're recording this in February, even though the episode probably won't go up until the summer. So this this will be old news probably by that point. But uh, the American Historical Association just released its jobs report for the year 2020. And their general conclusions are that the market, the job market seems to be stabilizing a little bit. Um, ever since the Great Recession started back around 2008, the number of academic jobs has been plummeting um, across the country. And the problem was that the number of PhDs being awarded did not decline because as the economy got worse, a lot of people actually went to grad school to, to get advanced degrees. And so a lot of people have graduated with those advanced degrees and haven't been able to find work, uh, which is one of the kind of themes of this podcast is how do people graduating with graduate degrees in history, how do they find work? Um, evidently, the, the, the number of jobs being advertised in the large markets like AHA and the um, HNET and uh, other job listing sites, the numbers have, have kind of leveled off. They have leveled off at a very low level. So it's not as if that, you know, everything is fixed. Um, it's just that the decline is not as is not like it used to be. It's kind of stabilized um, from year to year for the last year or two. And that's that's nice, um, I guess. <laughs> the uh, the number the, one of the things that it pointed out, though, is that the number of actual Ph.D. graduates is is declining now, though because there seemed to have been a lot kind of a realization among history departments across the country that it's not a good idea to keep churning out a high number of PhDs if there's not much of a job market waiting for them at the end of the process. And so there has been an attempt by a lot of universities across the country to cut down on the number of PhDs coming out of it. So basically the general conclusions are that the job numbers have stabilized the number of PhDs graduating is still declining, though. And so there's hope that at some point those lines will cross again. But the reality is that it's going to take so it would take so long for all of the PhDs that have graduated to find full time work that who knows when those lines would actually ever cross. So, you know, it's kind of a, a very tentatively positive <laughs> view of the job market for academia it's not really going to change much for most people that are actually on the job market, but you know, hopefully it's a sign that maybe there's some, some glimmer of hope on the horizon or something. But in, in the meantime, you know, it's still kind of every, every person for themselves. So anyway, so that's that. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, history, I mean, it has like, it, we're critical thinkers. So I mean, you always need those in society. So I would always advocate that. You I mean, at least the, the bachelor's degree is important. I mean, maybe not at the, upper enchalance of PhD, but 
thinking is important, especially in this climate that we have uh, politically or socially or economically. So I would always advocate for thinkers. Yeah. And that's basically been the saving grace, of course, for a lot of historians is that, yeah, maybe they're not going into the tenure track professor field that they had hoped they would when they first started their uh, PhD programs or even MA programs. Um, But there has been, and one of the things that hopefully this podcast series has demonstrated is that there's lots of, there's lots of ways you can go with that. There's lots of ways you can, you can survive as a historian, even if you're not going into the tenure track line. So there's, you're right. There's the, the critical thinking skills are going to be in value no matter where you go. And so there's, it's, it's, it's not all grim, but uh, there are still a lot of historians who think that, you know, the tenure track professor, that's the Holy grail that everybody should be aspiring for. And that's just not going to be a realistic goal for a very long time. So anyway, uh, putting all that aside, uh, thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear all about the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com, or through our Twitter feed at workhistorians. For Sarah Esty, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourselves and each other. Yes, I'm stealing that sign-off from Jerry Springer.